Our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians brings us today to chapter 10 and the story of a redeemed people who squandered their opportunities. No other apostle spoke more strongly about the amazing grace of Christ, but no other apostle urged us harder not to receive this grace in vain. Here is our Bible teacher, Dave Wordson, with a challenge to get in training so that we won't be found dead in the wilderness. We want to look at a portion of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that warns us about the danger of complacency. Paul reminded us that we're all in a race. We are all running, and Paul himself was part of this race, but he was very concerned that the Corinthians would run in vain, that they would begin the race well, they would begin running, but they would be sidetracked. And we look at the end of chapter 9, he says, Do you not know, verse 24, that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way so as to get the prize. Paul says about his own personal life in verse 27, No, I beat my body. In other words, I discipline my body. I keep my body in training. I resist the sensuous desires of the flesh. And I make my body a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is not talking about disqualification from eternal life. He's not talking about falling away from the family of God. He's not talking about losing the gift of eternal life because it is exactly that. It is a gift. It's very important for all of us to rest in the fact that by grace we've been saved through faith and that none of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But also it's very important to recognize that if every one of you have invited Christ into your heart, you become a born-again believer, you have come to the cross and received that marvelous cleansing from sin, it's very important to recognize that you stand in that grace, but that grace is not a license to live immorally. It's not a license to test God by not believing in the leadership that he gives us. And the Corinthians were very much in danger of taking the grace of God for granted. So in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, Corinthians, I want you to remember a people. I want you to remember a group that you know well, that you learned about, I might say, in Sunday school days. I want you to remember those Old Testament stories. And I want you to learn from them. Because what we're going to talk about today is life and its death. I'm so glad that you got up today. I'm so glad that you beat your body a little bit today. You understand what I'm talking about? It took discipline. It took some athletic self-control to get up. Because what we're going to talk about today could be the difference between life and death for you between a long life of prospering in God's family, of enjoying the blessings of God, or else the alternative of being out in the desert, parched, dry, drying up spiritually, and maybe even losing your physical life long before you're meant to lose it. That's the kind of challenge that the Apostle Paul is wrestling with 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Now he begins talking about some tremendous blessings. He begins talking about these old covenant people, the children of Israel, and he spells out to us five blessings that they had upon their lives. We'll begin by looking positively at all the privileges that we have in Christ. It's very important for you to stop and to thank God for who you are in Christ and what God has done for you in Christ. Then we're going to look at five warnings, five enticements, five temptations that can drag us into the wilderness, that can cause us to have our physical life endangered. But then we're going to end positively again with hope. And I want all of you to realize as we struggle from the positive to the negative and back to hope, that there's not any reason in the world, there's absolutely no reason why we should lose one of our young people, why we should lose one of our adults, why one of our children should be ensnared by Satan, get into his jaws, and devoured. There's no reason for that, because there's hope. In the midst of our day where so many people are saying things are different, the temptations are much more intense. They're different than what I faced. 1 Corinthians 10 is shouting at us, No! There's no excuse. You don't have to sin. The pressure isn't too great. You already have witnesses shouting at you from history past, telling you and warning you. And God's grace is in your life. And I want to say to every mom and dad, to every single person, every adult, every child, every young person, you don't have to sin. There's hope. And there's no reason to reenact the history of God's Old Testament people. We begin with the blessings. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. And then, in other words, Paul introduces, whenever he talks like that, he's saying, I'm talking to you about some things that you should know. And then he begins talking about the wilderness generation. He says, Brothers and sisters, our forefathers... We're all under the cloud. That's a very important phrase, our forefathers. What do you know about the people of Israel? Now, I don't want you to feel guilty, but I want you to get motivated to get to know your ancestry. Every one of you need to know about your forefathers. When I first came to Midlothian, we tried to play Bible, what do you call that? Charades, Bible charades. I remember going out to the Dunn Ranch, with about 40 kids. And I take a group of kids into the back bedroom and say, all right, I want you to reenact the burning bush incident, you know, where there was going to be the sacrifice of Isaac, where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And one of the kids was raised their hand and say, who's Isaac? Who is Abraham? And I began to realize very quickly at that early stage in our church that I was working with some kids that weren't from the same kind of a background that I was from. Now that's not something to feel guilty about, but it's something to get motivated about because what we're going to learn in this passage is that your children's lives might depend upon knowing the history of Israel. It might seem dry to you. In fact, if we're not careful in Sunday school sometimes, we can snow the kids with facts and not really communicate life. But what Paul believed with all of his heart is that God was speaking in those Old Testament incidents and happenings. And it was revealing to us how God interacts with people and how people behave and how people act. 
And I want to challenge every mom and dad, because it needs to be in your home. Your children need to learn from dad the stories of the Bible. You say, well, Dave, I'm a dad. I don't know the story of the Bible. Get a good Bible storybook for even a three-year-old. Erdman's or the Family Bible Library, go to the hidden treasures and say, listen, I'm brand new to this. I don't know the Bible story very well, but I want my kids to have that tradition. And you start reading those Bible stories to your kids and think about them. Dads, read them before you read them to your kids at night. Think about them. Think about just a little lesson about life, about God, about people that you could just mention to your kids. I challenge you to do that. It will pay unbelievable dividends. You say, why should I do that? Because your roots are in the Old Testament. Paul is telling us that our forefathers are the children of Israel. So if you want to find out what we're going to be like, look back at your roots. Look back at the temptations, the challenges, the privileges that those Old Testament people had. And oh, how we need to recapture that understanding of the Bible. Even secularists are bemoaning the fact there was a day when it was just assumed you would know the sacred writings. We need to, in the moments of our life, in our homes, through our Sunday school, through Awana, through the training ministry of our church, recapture that day where I could just mention, remember the story of the wilderness when the serpents struck the people. Remember that day, and everyone in this audience should know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul goes on, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. Paul said that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. Now, what story is that reminding us of? You can all get that one at Detective. We're talking about the Red Sea, and when were they under the cloud? What was the cloud? The cloud represented the presence of God. It represented the fact that God was dwelling among his people. As Pharaoh started to come from Egypt in pursuit of the children of Israel, as they were poised on the banks of the Red Sea, the presence of God during the night separated the people. The cloud moved from the front of the people where it was guiding them to over the people and then it rested behind the people and protected them from the onslaught of Pharaoh's army. And then the next day they passed through the sea because Moses raised his rod, the sea parted, and all the children of Israel went through the Red Sea. And it says in the text of Exodus that by doing that, they made the choice to identify with God's leadership, with Moses as the leader of the people. They were leaving Egypt. They were going under the leadership of Moses. Now Paul is telling us that they all experienced that baptism. They all experienced that identification. They all were under the presence of God, his guidance, his protection. And they all identified with the leadership of Moses. So they had supernatural guidance and protection and God gave them a supernatural deliverance, and they had supernatural leadership. You say, well, Dave, what does that have to do with us? Well, the analogy is very, very evident. Paul's talking about Christian baptism. Now, he's not talking about Christian baptism as a magical rite that somehow puts some water on you or puts you underwater and magically protects you. 
Now, you would all agree with me that that is so, and yet there's a lot of you that are very much influenced by superstition and magic. And that's the idea that yeah, I, need to, I need to be baptized because somehow that will protect me. Somehow that will keep me. And you turn a physical act into a religious act that becomes a magical act that somehow wards off the evil spirits. The Indians in the early days of the United States had all kinds of rituals that were like that. They would go out into a river in the early morning and they would go underneath the water and then they would look up at the sun and they would rejoice that mother's son coming up. And they would believe that that ritual bath would protect them from disease and would protect them from enemies. Now we're much more sophisticated but it's easy for us to turn our religious acts into acts of magic. The Corinthians were in danger of doing that. The Apostle Paul resists that magical element and he stresses the idea of the reality of the presence of God in our midst. The moment you were born again, the moment you believed in Christ, you were delivered. The moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ, your sins were forgiven, you were born into God's family, that was a spiritual reality that took place in your life. When you were water baptized, you acted out an object lesson that very beautifully pictured that unity with Christ. You were telling a congregation of people, I have chosen Christ as my leader. I want to be obedient to him. He has cleansed me from sins. And I, in a very real sense, have died with him on the cross. And that's why my sins are forgiven. And I'm now being raised to live a new life. And in that act of baptism, you gave a public testimony to the fact that you are now under the protection of God as his child. You had now been delivered from your sin by the work of Christ. And you had now identified with Christ as your leader. Paul also talks about something else. He goes on to talk about some food that they ate. He says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What else did they all do? They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now what is he talking about there? First of all, Go on our Sunday school quiz again. What was the spiritual food that the children of Israel ate? Manna. That's right. You've all got it. So we're doing our job. Good. What was the spiritual drink that they drank? They drank water. But they got the water a very special way. In the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, in the very beginning of the wilderness wanderings, they received water in a special way from the rock. That's right. And the first time God told them to strike the rock, and the rock was divided, it was broken, and the flow of water came, and, and the people were able to receive refreshment. At the end of the wilderness wanderings, the Lord told Moses to speak to the rock. And what did he do? He struck the rock, and God got so upset with him because he presumed upon the command of the Lord, and he did not follow the command of the Lord explicitly. And he took some of the honor for what was done upon himself. 
The Lord didn't let him in this earthly life enter the promised land. So it was a very strategic turning point in the life of Moses. But at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, Israel received the water from the rock at the end of it. In fact, there's a rabbinic tradition that there was a rock that went with the people all through their wilderness wanderings that gave them water. Now, I don't think Paul is telling us that that tradition was true. Because I think that Paul is saying that Jesus is the rock because in the Old Testament, the word rock was used for God, for Yahweh. He is our rock. He is our protector. He is our defender. He is our strength. He is our sustenance. He's what we build the foundation of our life upon. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is that rock. Jesus was the one. It wasn't a physical rock. It wasn't some magical act. But the creator of the universe miraculously gave water to his people in the beginning of the wilderness wanderings and at the end of the wilderness wanderings. Now, when Jesus talked to the woman of the well in John chapter 4, what did he tell her? He said, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask of him and he would give you living water and you'll never thirst again. You know what's happening in that text? The rock from the Old Testament... The embodiment of Yahweh himself living on this planet was telling the woman of Samaria, I am the author of life. I gave water to the Old Testament people, but I can give a much more refreshing, a much more satisfying drink. I can give you the gift of life that will never run dry. A life that will keep bubbling up unto life eternal. I can give to those who will believe in me, those of you that are sitting here this morning, if you have drunk deeply from the well of Christ, deep in your heart as you sit there, you might be discouraged, you might be facing a great time of trial in your life, you might be facing severe testing, but if Jesus is in your life, you can go to him and you can say, Lord, I don't have the strength. My lips are parched. My body is running out of vitality. My emotions are running dry. And I need the wells of eternal life. I need you to give me refreshment. I need you to give me strength. I need you to get me through. And Jesus is telling us that his New Testament people, just like his Old Testament people, have access to that living water of eternal life. What, a, what an unbelievable wonder that we have that free gift, that joyous gift of the living water, the well of water that bubbles up within us unto eternal life. So Paul talks to us about the Old Testament people drinking from this supernatural spring by the creative hand of God, and we are reminded that we as New Testament people enjoy that same sustenance. So the children of Israel in the Old Testament had supernatural guidance. They had supernatural deliverance. They had supernatural leadership. They had supernatural food. They had supernatural drink. What does all this mean? Baptism and communion are not magical amulets of protection. God's child needs to obey the will of God. And what Paul does in this passage is bring these two dominant symbols, this idea of baptism of putting myself under the protection of God, identifying with the leadership of God. And he puts this stress upon the manna as the bread 
and the living water representing the blood of Christ. Paul puts all this together as an illustration to remind us that in the communion meal and in baptism, we too are identified with all these basic elements that God's Old Testament people partook of. In communion, we're fed with heavenly bread. Not in the idea that somehow we partake of the physical body of Christ or somehow magically that it becomes the body of Christ, but as an illustration of the fact that God's children are feeding upon the bread of life. John chapter 6 talks about Jesus as the bread of life, the true manna that was given from heaven. Paul brings all of these illustrations together and reminds us as believers today that we too have received all of these spiritual blessings. Now, you say, well, Dave, I've got it. In other words, I have supernatural guidance and protection. I have supernatural deliverance. I have this food. I have Christ dwelling within me. I have spiritual drink. In other words, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all of my sin. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to do, right? I'm certain that everything's going to be all right. That's what a lot of the Corinthians were saying. A lot of the Corinthians were saying to themselves, they said, hey, everything's all right. Because I have these spiritual blessings, it doesn't make any difference the way I live my life. Now, Paul changes gears, and in the second part, he talks about God's discipline against his Old Testament people. He talks about what happened to his Old Testament people. God's discipline against his Old Testament people. Verse 6 through 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. If you study the history of the wilderness generation, the very first thing they did is they griped against Moses because they said, Moses, we want the leeks and garlics of Egypt. And it uses the word desire, kavad. They said, we covet that old way of life. Why did you bring us into the new way of life? We want to go back. Believer, I want to warn you. In fact, I think that believers that have been raised, it's the second generation believers that needs to be very much warned of craving that old way of life. As American believers today, Paul's words go to the root of our lethargy and shallowness. All of us know that when you gorge yourself on junk food and vegetate in front of the television set, that it doesn't take long before you get sick. We also know how good we feel when we get out the old running shoes and discipline ourselves to get in shape. Paul is exhorting us that this same discipline is needed spiritually. Grace is totally free, but it is never cheap. The true Christ moves us to live for our heavenly home instead of allowing sinful slime to pull us down. We all realize that those who really do love us are willing to give us strong warnings when they see us headed for disaster. The Apostle Paul was this kind of friend and we will be continuing the exposure of his clarion warning 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in our next encounter with truth. <music>